Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so let's take a moment to review where we've been. And um, I just wanted to say before we begin, uh, I hope everyone has received the schedule for tomorrow, uh, which is a little bit different. Uh, it's our uh, short uh, one-day sitting. And if you have not, please put your email address in the chat window and I'll make sure that you get a copy of it. So, <clears throat> so let's just take a moment to review where we've been. Uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Four Brahma Viharas that have formed the teaching of our practice period and our intensive. We've been investigating the Four Truths realized by the Noble Ones, the ones who are fully enlightened. We recall that Dukkha simply means painful or stressful. It's not totalizing. Birth is also joyful, exciting, thrilling, and so on, as well as being painful and stressful. So the first noble truth of dukkha, <clears throat> birth is dukkha, death is dukkha, old age is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, having to be with what we do not love is dukkha, having to be apart from what we do love is dukkha, not getting what we want is dukkha. The second noble truth of the causes and conditions for dukkha, including ignorance and the craving for sense desires for existence and for non-existence. The third noble truth is the cessation of suffering, the remainderless extinction of it through letting go of craving and compulsion. <clears throat> uh, this letting go brings liberation and wonder. <clears throat> the fourth noble truth of the way leading to cessation the Eightfold Practices of Right View, right, <clears throat> right Intention, Right Speech, Right Action, Right Livelihood, Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Concentration. So these eight factors unfold along the path and also enfold each other. Each one contains all of the others. As you will also recall, we connected each of the Four Noble Truths with a particular Brahma-vihara, or divine abode, metta, kindness or benevolence, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. But we did not talk much about that last Brahma-vihara, equanimity, yesterday, because I wanted to save it for today, so that we could have plenty of time to discuss this Brahma-vihara often the most misunderstood. So in the popular imagination, Zen in particular, and Buddhism more generally, is associated with a kind of stoic remove, uh, fueled by media depicting monks, rows of absolutely still monks sitting like statues, and masters given to cryptic pronouncements. The equanimity we speak of is sometimes thought to numb all emotion and make people more or less into zombies. For many people, this image or notion is a real barrier to Zen practice or meditation in general. Probably all of you have encountered people talking about you or someone as so Zen because of non-reacting 
to some experience or difficult person with emotional upset. Or when upset, they wish they could be more zen about it. It's only half admiring, but also uncomprehending and baffled. In our culture, we favor the dramatic, the expressive, and the emotional. <clears throat> to be calm when others expect an emotional reaction is sometimes off-putting and alien. People bond with each other through their shared emotional responses. Yet, they also find reassurance in someone who can remain calm when others are distressed or when the situation is somehow upsetting. So this Zen calm can sometimes be seen as an asset and sometimes as a barrier to connection. And this is especially true when practitioners marshal it to deflect or avoid genuine connection and engagement. In any case, it's based on a distorted idea about what equanimity really means. But the Buddha, in as many references and teachings about equanimity and dispassion, was not talking about a kind of numbing out or becoming unreachable or avoiding something we don't want to deal with or suppressing strong emotions. The quality of equanimity the Buddha spoke of is an alive, engaged, and warmly connected ease and readiness. That readiness is a responsive and responsible function. When the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are well established, there's an unshakable foundation for our vow, for the Buddha heart and mind in each of us to come forth in any situation, unhindered by our conditioning or preferences. It is not attached to some view of ourself, not striving to prove anything or to be special in any way. Gil Fronsdale refers to this quality as equipoise, which neatly conveys a sense of balance and ease. Think of the tightrope walker, who's perfectly balanced on the wire while performing astonishing acrobatic movements. That balance is not dependent on maintaining a particular position or a rigid posture. It is dynamic and continuously changing, yet somehow still at its center. I think of the famous story in Zen of the young village girl who became pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy. Her parents were enraged and demanded to know the name of the baby's father. Frightened, she named the master of the local Zen temple, Hakuin. Furious, the parents stormed to the temple with the baby and confronted Hakuin, shouting so that the whole village could hear that Hakuin was the father of this girl's baby. Hakuin calmly replied, is that so? They shoved the baby at him and told him it was his responsibility to raise him. So Hakuin took the baby, went down to the village, and bought milk, and began to take care of him. Hakuin's monks left in disgust, and the villagers shunned him for this terrible ethical breach. Still, he cared for this tiny life. Time went on, maybe a year passed, and the girl, filled with remorse and shame, finally broke down and told her parents that the baby is the, tr the baby's true father was a village fisherman, a young boy, like herself. She was filled with grief about her deception. Parents were horrified. They raced back to the temple and demanded the return of the baby. 
saying that Hakon was not the father of the baby after all. Is that so? Hakon murmured. He handed over the baby and returned to the temple. <clears throat> Do we have that capacity when unjustly accused? I often wonder because in our least interactions, it seems to me that we are constantly justifying, explaining, defending, or protesting in defense of ourself. Aquin's level of equanimity seems almost surreal. After all, he was a celibate Buddhist monk with no experience raising children. You can only imagine he must have immediately set about learning what a baby needs providing diapers, blankets, playthings. He must have spent hours just observing and responding to the little guy, paying close attention and learning how to attune with him. It was unjust, but he did not exert his moral authority as the spiritual leader of the village. He didn't proclaim his innocence or try to shift blame onto the girl or anyone else. Chances are good that he already knew who the real father was right at the beginning. In a small village, it's impossible to hide a crush, as I well know. Why didn't he point the finger? Is that so? A bemused question, an open mind, a steadiness in knowing who he really is, and an abiding wisdom and compassion for everyone in the situation. Equanimity is to be so relaxed about who you are that you are at home in any situation and able to manifest your vow under all circumstances. Although you are responsive to the situation and the people in it, it almost doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you. This is not because you do not care about others, but because you are fully in charge of yourself. Sometimes I think about it this way when dealing with a difficult situation or person. Why would I allow anyone else to regulate my inner experience? Why would I allow anyone to shake me from my vow? No one has earned that right. Even when we've been married for a long time and have intimate knowledge of each other, we maintain responsibility for managing our own inner well-being, our own experience of the world. This is right effort. We are always aware that we can only have a partial and temporary view of any situation, of any person. We are always aware of the three marks of existence, impermanence or inconstancy, suffering, and non-self. It is not unexpected for painful situations to arise, to last a while, and to disappear. And we recognize that they are essentially empty of anything we can refer to as I, me, or mine. Why is equanimity so important that the Buddha mentioned it over and over again? Why does he talk about dispassion as an attainment in our practice path? Emotional upset can cloud our judgment and our view. It can lead us into unskillful speech and actions. It subverts our aspiration and vow, and it entangles us in self-centered dreams and stories. Habitual emotion states have a kind of compulsive quality to them, which is what makes meditation so disconcerting. As we begin to be aware of how we are being jerked around by our conditioning, we are still subject to its addictive qualities, our sense of grievance, our anxiety, our fears, our depressions, our rages, our sadness, and
and our victimhood. It's really hard to wake up to the imprisonment we find ourselves in, our entanglement with our emotion states, stories, and projections, without yet being free of them. This is where the practice of the Brahma Viharas is so valuable, because we can turn the radiance of the, those four qualities of kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity toward our own suffering self. So equanimity is not some kind of stoic denial or repression, but simply the gaze of friendliness, curiosity, and care. So for example, when someone says something provocative or outrageous and checks you for your reaction, suppose you simply say, I guess I'm just wondering what you are going to say next. Nothing is required of you except what you want to give in that moment. On campus, our faculty meetings were often contentious. I mostly kept silent, listening to each impassioned person set out their best arguments. Ultimately, they would turn to me and say, well, what do you think? 30 or 40 years of Zen practice, especially with a fine teacher, are good preparation for this kind of challenge. Sometimes I would restate each person's main idea and then say, I think it's wonderful that we have such diverse perspectives on this issue. In hearing these views, we're more likely to come to a wise decision. I never endorsed sides, but sometimes I actually did have a position that felt right to me. Then I would say, I do have a strong opinion on this issue, but I know that's not the only view that may be valid. And I've been wrong in the past. So I'm curious to hear what others think. But often the best offering I could make in a meeting would be silence because nothing was being asked of me in the situation. So better not to contribute more noise. Of course, I did have times of great upset as well. I don't think anyone has perfect equanimity all of the time, even the Dalai Lama. We're imperfect beings in an outrageous world. So we're going to have many, many opportunities to practice cultivating this Brahma-Vihara. We're the stewards and the guardians of our own internal experience, our minds, our bodies, and our spiritual path. We can be intentional about how we manage ourselves, what kinds of influence we allow others to have over our minds and hearts, and we can still be blindsided by life. In our relational practice, we learn the importance of trust, and the safety net of resilience and faith when problems or missteps arise. When we have this kind of confidence, it is easier to maintain our equanimity when upsets occur. More practically, consider how our emotional reactivity is actually unskillful. You'll recall that in the Buddhist tradition, those activities that cause harm are considered unskillful, and those that are beneficial are skillful. In difficult or upsetting situations, equanimity is even more skillful than in times of ease. How does it help anyone in this situation, including ourselves, if we become agitated and emotional? How do we help when we magnify the drama or the emotional energy? The person in this situation, no matter how dire, who can maintain some degree of equanimity, is in a position to benefit others and to be a resource in meeting the situation with wisdom and compassion instead of being one of the people who needs to be taken care of. The Buddha also used the term dispassion interchangeably with equanimity. 
dispassion is even more unpopular because we're addicted to our passions and because we've come to idealize passion as a creative force. And of course it is a creative force as well as a destructive one. But in either case, passion has a compulsive force that carries us, sometimes blindly and helplessly, on the river of emotion. It can be thrilling, but it is not free. I don't think Buddha would disapprove the kind of passion that serves us on the spiritual path. But even there we can become caught in craving. And this, of course, is conducive to suffering. Is it possible to deeply love someone dispassionately? Yes, of course. And in many ways, this is truly mature love because it's free of clinging and egoic identification. It is the love between equals. Dispassion frees us to meet each other most intimately. Equanimity requires courage. It is not fearless because it knows fear, but it cannot be unseated by it. It is not blind or numb to the situation, but rather attentive and attuned to everyone and everything in it, and alert to possibilities in it as well. This quality is free of notions of self, how I should act, what people think of me in the situation, what I want to have happen, how I can get what I want. The practice of equanimity cannot be engaged abstractly by thinking about it or trying to somehow be it. It's not a self-improvement goal. To train in this Brahma-Vihara is to engage the entire Eightfold Path day after day, week after week, breath after breath. This pandemic is an excellent training ground as the news cycle continues to assault us with the ups and downs of everything from buying flour to the making of masks to the terrible death toll that is steadily rising. Every upset, every emotional reaction, every person you speak to who is agitated and depressed or outraged is part of our bodhisattva training program in equanimity. We couldn't ask for a more challenging course to train and test us. Every small worry, every global dread, every obstacle that is thrown in our path is training. We practice so that we can meet our lives wholeheartedly, regardless of the circumstances, so that we can align with our vow and express our deepest aspiration, no matter what. Every time you meet someone's worry with calm and reassurance, the global level of anxiety goes down a tiny bit. Every time you refuse to collude with the news media in its focus on spectacle, every time you settle your own mind, relieve your own upset, you increase the global level of equanimity. So now I'd like to say just a little bit about the relationship between emotions and equanimity because I think there's the potential for misunderstanding there. We may idealize equanimity <clears throat> and treat it as a goal, and we may view our own emotional ups and downs or those of another as somehow lacking equanimity. First, we must understand that everyone has a unique fingerprint in experiencing and displaying emotions. For some people, emotions are always close to the surface and often they are also sensitive to the emotions of others. For other people, emotions run deeper and may not even show on the surface, or they may be unaware of them. Beyond the experience of emotions, each person has their unique expression of emotions, 
often these patterns of experience and expression are shaped by our early childhood experiences and family dynamics. My father, for example, was a Navy officer and the son of a minister. His emotions were deep and often unknown to himself, and he seldom displayed any emotions. He had been trained to comport himself with composure. My mother was the opposite, passionate and very demonstrative of her own emotions. Worse luck for my dad, she expected him to experience and display emotions as she did. This was the source of a lot of suffering for them both as they fought bitterly about it. We do not know what another is feeling inside. We must never judge another's emotional experience or display of emotions. We must guard against any expectations about what we or others will feel or do in any situation based on our own sense of what emotions are right to feel or express. Rather, we must be fully present to the actual emotions we and others are experiencing. If we have a clear view of the situation, we may notice the extent that we or others extend or amplify the natural emotions, how we amp ourselves up and each other. Whether we're using strong emotions as a social bond rather than simply experiencing them. Some people become addicted to the rush of strong emotions. We may use them in many ways to earn approval or to show our superior sensitivity or to mobilize someone for a cause. They become part of our ongoing self-construction. So it's very important to investigate how our own emotions and the emotions of others are expressed, how they impact the situation, and whether the expression of them increases suffering or relieves it. As the Black Lives Matter movement demonstrates, there's a time and place for strong emotion in response to injustice and cruelty. But those emotions have been channeled into peaceful protests and mass demonstrations rather than acts of violence or cruelty that would only replicate the fundamental structure of oppression. So equanimity is not about becoming a being who does not have emotions or even one who does not display emotions. Emotions are a valuable dharma gate and an authentic response to our human predicament. All emotions have their place and can be an appropriate response. Equanimity is not about reaching a magical realm of absence of emotion. It is not even about not displaying emotions, which may be a very appropriate response to life as it is. Equanimity is not being disabled by our emotions or those of others. In emotional situations, our vow still applies. Our intention to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings is still present. The energy of emotion is valuable. It can be channeled to serve life. For this reason, the Eightfold Path is our valuable practice guide. With right view, we see situations clearly and we are aware that there is much that we do not know and cannot see. We clearly recognize the emotions of ourselves and others in a situation. We stay connected to right intention, right speech, right action, as a way to mobilize the energy of the emotions in the situation for the benefit of life itself. We consider the way we make our life, our household, our work, our presence in the world, and use the energy of emotions 
to align them with our intention. We apply ourselves with right effort, mindfully, and with concentration, so that our emotions serve our bodhisattva vow. And always, we view emotional situations, people, and experiences as a training ground for that vow. The more we understand emotions as waves of experience that arise, persist for a while, and then disappear, the more we recognize our own patterns of reactivity, the more we are able to be a resource for others. I had a complicated relationship with my mother, as many people do, and when she died, peacefully but unexpectedly, I made a promise to myself not to be caught by what I or other people expected me to feel or do, but to study carefully exactly what was actually arising in response. This freedom simplified things, slowed them down, and allowed me to meet all the various feelings that showed up. As they moved through, there was a kind of calm abiding with them. <clears throat> I think if I had been subject to my own expectations and those of others, some of those subtler emotions would have simply been submerged, some of the unwanted ones would have been repressed, and some of the surprising ones would not have appeared at all. Worse yet, I would no doubt have performed those expected emotions, which tend to be simplistic and two-dimensional, and at the same time I would have felt a bit guilty for not feeling them as I should have or not displaying them, I would have felt shame or embarrassment. In this way of allowing a spacious field for everything to move freely, I felt and experienced a great deal of equanimity, curiosity, and care, both for myself and my mother. I was able to plan and conduct her memorial with a kind of ease and to comfort her friends who were grieving the loss. Equanimity does not mean we will never experience distress in ourselves or in meeting others. It means that we have settled down with calm abiding in the four immeasurables, kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. We live in the boundless heart and mind of the Buddha. From that home, we serve and benefit all beings regardless of the circumstances and all they carry. So let's practice wisely and with compassion together in this strange time we inhabit now. May we support and cherish all beings. <clears throat>